0: And welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jørgensen.
1: I'm Finn Arne Jørgensen.
0: And we're your hosts for the Book Talk today with Nayanika Mather, who's Associate Professor in Anthropology at the University of Oxford. And she'll be talking about her new book, Crooked Cats, Beastly Encounters in the Anthropocene, which come out with the University of Chicago Press in 2021. So Nainika, we'll give it over to you to introduce the book. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you, um, Dolly and Finn, for arranging this book talk. Um, You know, I was originally scheduled to deliver this talk in May this year, but my family and I were swept away by this horrific second COVID wave in India where we were then. And I was just telling Dolly and Finn that just recalling that terrifying period in our lives and those of, you know, quite literally millions of others, it, it, this is a sort of a salutary reminder of the privilege of being well and the privilege of being able to be here with all of you to discuss this book today. Uh, thank you so much for coming for this. So, um, the book um, Cricket Cats um, has just been published a couple of months back, um, July 2021. But this beastly tale actually began life one winter morning in 2006, uh, you know, 15 years back, when I had just begun my doctoral research. I was then living in a small Himalayan town near India's border with Tibet and I was then studying bureaucracy, paperwork and the welfare state when one fine morning a man-eating leopard or what I prefer to describe as a crooked cat turned up in this town. So this, this big cat announced her arrival in rather dramatic style by attacking a neighbor of mine, a woman who I knew somewhat, uh, and she, and, you know, this she attacked her in broad daylight um, in front of a lot of people. Mercifully, um, this woman did not die, but she got, she had very, very, you know, painful injuries through this attack. Now, this particular leopard then went on to establish what was popularly described as a reign of terror in this town for the next few months. And it took a few, you know, it took about almost three months before she was hunted down. During this period, um, all we did was talk about the leopard uh, and the word for this leopard or tiger or lion in Hindi is bhag. So all we did was sort of talk about the bhag all the time, so much so that I began to maintain a diary on this leopard alongside my other field notes and my personal diary. So that winter of 2006 was when this book Crooked Cats really began life, though I didn't quite know it then because I was so sort of uh, concentrating on, you know, my doctoral research, which was quite different from this. Now, this big cat had a walk-on part in in the fir- in my first book, Paper Tiger, that resulted from that research, uh, most strikingly in the conceiving of the book title and the final chapter on bureaucratic temporalities and the failures of law. In 2015, I returned to this, uh, the same part of India. It's a state called Uttarakhand. It's a small Himalayan state in Northern India. It borders uh, Nepal and Tibet. Um, and I sort of went back there to do another sort of fieldwork related project. But this time I was based out of the capital city of Dehradun. Within weeks of my arrival, a young woman was killed by a leopard just down the road from where I was residing in an uncanny mirroring of precisely what had happened almost a decade back in Gopeshwar. This time, instead of being a small remote Himalayan town, it was in the sprawling capital city of the state, in the plains and within the bounds of the Forest Research Institute, which is an institution that was central to the birth of scientific forestry in India in the 19th century. Teradun reverberated with the shock of this killing. There was a proliferation of bark talk yet again, And I just found myself pulled back into the world of crooked cats. So while I had been interested in and I had been sort of, you know, keeping uh, sort of some sort of research going on big cats that make prey of humans ever since 2006, it was really only after the second incident in 2015 that I really got my, you know, teeth back into them, if you will pardon the spun. Now, let me sort of, so this is sort of the origin story of how this book happened. Uh, But let me sort of, what I'm going to do now for the next, you know, 10 12 minutes is really just uh, pick out some questions that I get asked quite often, and also just some of the contributions I hope uh, this book is making or is contributing to certain discussions in certain ways. So, let me first begin with the title. Um, so, question that I often get asked is, you know, why do I call them crooked cats? You know, um, what's the point of this title, and why, why crooked cats instead of what they're more popularly known as, which is man eaters? So right from the start, I was quite uncomfortable with the term man-eater for it's you know, so obviously sexist in its use of man rather than human. Uh, and as it happens, most of the victims of attacks by predatory big cats tend to be women or young children. Um, but beyond this initial discomfort, I also found the colonial origin of the term as well as the manner in which the state, the contemporary Indian state and conservationist agencies deploy it quite problematic. And something that you know, I think is quite central to the endeavor that underpins this work is uh, to break from both the colonial accounts of big cats um, in India, as well as the more contemporary conservationist positions uh, on big cats. Um, and I also sort of want to critically assess the role of the state um, and particularly the sort of the governance regimes that have been put uh, around uh, the preservation and conservation of big cats in India. So in a way, you know, I'm trying to break from all these accounts, whether it's a colonial account or conservationist account or the statist account. Uh, and so I didn't find the term manita particularly suitable uh, for doing that. But actually the reason that I really turned to the, the term crooked cats and why I find it convincing is because when these big cats are described as man it really doesn't square up with the many stories that I've heard and recorded on them. So let me just sort of tell you one of the stories which also explains why, uh, you know, where the st- the title comes from. So one way in which the presence of such big cats was explained to me in the Indian Himalaya, in the state of Uttarakhand that I just mentioned, was through the description as departing from the straight and narrow path to become, for some absolutely inexplicable reasons, crooked. There are, I was told in Uttarakhand, two types of big cats. There are those that are siddha sada or straightforward, simple, Um, and they're as scared of humans as we are of them, if not more, such uh, big cats, which is the vast majority of leopards, tigers and lions, in fact, um, know how to live with humans and they're quite careful to avoid any unpleasant encounters with them. The problem lies with the other type of bug, with the other type of big cats, those that have gone off the straight and narrow path to become what's called tela or crooked. This crookedness leads them to disrupt the peaceful coexistence that otherwise prevails between humans and big cats. Now, what are the questions that underpin this book? The most obvious and the biggest question at some level is what makes a big cat crooked? How do we humans come to recognize and intimately know a crooked cat? How does one live beside such peace? And what might crooked cats have to do with the climate crisis, with life in the Anthropocene, or perhaps even more perplexingly with disciplinary boundaries, methodologies, and the question of how academic writing intervenes in the world. Now, these are the questions that this book delves into. And these are the questions that the term crooked cat allows me to sort of, you know, explore, uh, I hope. So, you know, I, I think I should begin by saying that, you know, um, one of the sort of, what I think of is one of the defining characteristics of this work is that every chapter in it is speculative in nature. Uh, Each chapter offers out several possible theories, case studies, and what I think of as informed musings. Crooked Cat sits uneasily with the production of an overarching authoritative explanatory narrative that is very much expected of academic writing. Now, this is partly a reflection of the temporality and form of my fieldwork, but is primarily, I believed, derived from the topic under consideration. Crooked cats are discussed through recourse to speculation, guesswork, the proffering of theories, analyses of cases, gesturing to historical examples, and by leaning on biographical details of humans and big cats alike. Um, So I've sort of, you know, consulted scientific and conservationist journals, as well as state manuals, books of history, animal behavior, human geography, anthropology, political theory fiction, colonial diaries and popular culture, my methods range from long term participant observation in a bounded field site to free ranging interviews to discourse analysis to the study of whatsapp forwards social media news items and images my interlocutors similarly are a motley bunch including but not restricted to hunters families or victims the injured conservationists forest guards bureaucrats journalists uh, you know just wildlife enthusiasts of all stripes taxi drivers, school children, college students, biologists, photographers, or even just someone who regularly sees a tiger or leopard near the house, and even the odd poacher. So, you know, when I would ask these people, especially in the Himalaya, about crooked cats, they would respond by referring to human actors and historically shaped political structures. So, for instance, I'd come and, you know, there's, say, a, a crooked cat in the vicinity, and I'd ask them about, you know, why do you think this cat is there? Know are you scared of them? Like, what's your like what do you feel about them basically? And I was really struck by the responses because the response really always sort of mentioned politics and power and the state. And in fact, the presence of an exploitative state um, that is only interested in furthering the interests of its own narrow coterie of powerful and wealthy people was particularly stressed. so was capital. In a very interesting way, capital was ever present in these accounts in the form of polluting, fumes spitting, resource draining big businesses, and the lopsided fruits of such industries that benefit a thin sliver of the population. Empire too was never absent. With references made to the British Raj and the post-colonial Indian state, was oftentimes accused of practicing a form of internal colonialism. Metaphors of death, of destruction, predation, endings, and being swallowed. Or sort of eaten alive or omnipresent as was a sense of deep time. The other thing which is quite discernible in many of these narratives on crooked crooked cats is actually a sympathetic stance towards the beasts once they had been killed or captured that is with elaborate theories propounded to explain why they do what they do. There were rich accounts of individual named big cats alive and dead that were also narrated to me The real beast of the tale in the majority of the tellings, then, was not the offending leopard or tiger, but rather certain types of humans. The centrality of human action and the role of politics, history, capital, ecology, the landscape, forests and the destruction of them, the rage of the rivers, gods like Shiva, other animals like dogs and bears, government documents, the state, political parties, charismatic individuals, whether these were human or big cats, um, reincarnation, social media, surveillance regimes, and many other very surprising to me features were brought up to explain the presence and actions of crooked cats. These accounts, I argue, show a sharp understanding of history, capitalism, modern politics, animal behavior, sociology, and the ecological breakdown. They rippled with anger, with beauty, humor, fear, deep historical sensibilities, ecological consciousness vivid imaginations, literary sensibilities, and sharp political analyses. I weave these stories together to claim that they are powerful depictions of life in the Anthropocene. Paying careful attention to the connections they trace, their logics and poetics, and the regimes of governance and intimacies they emerge from, allows us to productively deploy the concept of the Anthropocene. So in, uh, let me just say what are the, you know, what are the main questions of this book? So in Crooked Cats, I look at beastly tales, what I call beastly tales, these are stories that are populated by human and non-human beasts of all types and the intricate entanglements at the very center of a series of cascading questions. First and quite simply, how does one understand the phenomenon of crooked cats in India today? Leading on from this, how might the beastly tales of crooked cats deepen our understanding of the causes consequences and conceptualization of the climate crisis. And finally, how do they open out the debate on the Anthropocene? I hope to show through this work that beastly tales illuminate the Anthropocene in three critical ways, as method, as a way of reframing human non-human relations on the planet, and as a political tool indicating the urgency of academic engagement. So just a few clarifications before I sort of stop talking. The Anthropocene, of course, as all of you know, but I'm just going to repeat it uh, here, is a term coined by geologists to signify the epoch subsequent to the Holocene in which human actions are shaping the planet so profoundly that they're now acting as a geological force. This is the age we're currently living in, though debates about precisely when it began continue to rage. Climate change is now widely accepted to be anthropogenic in nature. The distinction between climate change and the Anthropocene is nicely set out by Julia Adney Thomas, where she describes the Anthropocene as a multi-dimensional predicament that needs to be navigated through by the, by the deployment of new ways of thinking. Climate change is a product of the Anthropocene, but is not fully encapsulated by it, and it would be dangerous to conflate the two. I utilize the Anthropocene to refer to the critical requirement of finding new ways of thinking and doing academic labor, I work from the premise that the Anthropocene signifies a political and ethical imperative to act in the world with a new urgency. To do so requires the weaving together of stories and elements of social, ecological, biological, historical, and political life that have been hitherto kept apart. This is not the same challenge as the one that the long-standing issue of interdisciplinarity posed, but is a somewhat different animal, so to say, due to the need to write in a new geological epoch and its potentially apocalyptic Effects for life, human and otherwise, on Earth. Now, of course, human-animal relationships the world over, not just in India, are being profoundly shaped and changed by the ecological breakdown. Many of the central themes of crooked cats, the bewildering rise and attacks on humans by cats, by big cats. That is the changing behavior of these big cats that is being captured on cameras and televisions and is evidenced in acts such as the increasing entry to the urban, heavy, heavily populated sites. Um, Imminent species extinction with the tiger in a particularly vulnerable position, human anger at and struggles with conservationism are intimately linked. All of these are intimately linked to a changing planet. In that sense, the climate crisis enters empirically as a fact that can no longer be turned away from and is an urgent need of acknowledgement. So, just the last point is, and I'm going to stop after that. You know, I think one of the things that this book then tries to do is that how does it Talk about something as big as the climate crisis through something as apocalyptic, you know, as apocalyptic as the climate crisis. Something that is so hard to pin down and so hard to sort of articulate through accounts of a seemingly tiny or seemingly sort of niche and rather orientalized accounts of big cats that make prey of India of humans in India. Now, this is an ambition and a huge methodological challenge of the book, and I argue that it entails a questioning of long-standing modes of describing the world. It requires a transformation in how we narrate the story of human-animal relationships, as well as the plotline and who or what the main protagonists are. Um, I think this new form of storytelling also requires what we can perhaps call an agnostic stance towards disciplinary boundedness or subfields, such as environmental anthropology or wildlife history or more than human geography. Uh, And that's one of the reasons that I found sort of the, the concept of the Anthropocene uh, quite useful uh, or you know as a framing because it allows us to sort of move uh between and beyond disciplines in a way um, and that is why I've sort of centered in this entire book uh storytelling through this thing that I call beastly tales. These are sort of stories about uh what's happening around these crooked cats, and I want to sort of devise a mode of uh, storytelling in which we can work through these you know these very specific issues of big cats that make prey of humans in India. And then from that, be able to sort of scale up to talk about something as big as the climate crisis. So that's sort of an ambition of the book. Um, I'm, you know, I, I leave it to you to hopefully read the book and tell me whether uh, it is uh, achieved in any way or not. But I'm gonna sort of stop here with this very sort of brief introduction. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nainika. Uh, it's really fascinating to hear then this uh, account of, well, living in, sharing spaces with animals uh, on well scales from the very local to the planetary right i mean because that's ultimately what we're talking about with with the anthropocene so um there are plenty of things here we can discuss i mean i just also encourage then the audience to to let us know in the chat uh, if to have comments i thought i'd ask about first and is language so you use this term crooked cats so where you know crooked becomes something that assigns particular characteristics to cats uh and that is quite common to do you know with animals they they all have various characteristics uh, and i think it's also quite language dependent and culturally dependent you know what kind of characteristics they get Uh, so i mean do you do you have this equivalent you mentioned that you have you know the the word was "bog," I think, for, for the, the big cats that in Hindi. But do you then have the same kind of assigning characteristics there? And do you see a change over time, I mean, with kind of environmental change, with their, I mean, original habitats coming under, well, being encroached and by human spaces?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so you're absolutely right, the language here is actually quite important. Um, and that's something that, you know, I've, I've also sort of found really interesting. That the moment, and you know, to go back to the thing of why do I not use the word manita, there is a Hindi equivalent to it, which is adamkhor which is quite literally a straight translation of the term manita, um, which was used quite often by people in the mountains. But actually, when I would really sit down and talk to them, then they would the stories that they were telling about the, these beasts, um, it wasn't they, they would often not use that term or they would use it in different ways. Um, and this, this particular phrase, crooked cats, translates quite directly into something teda bag," which means crooked, big cat. Um, and that was a way that a few people described them to me. They're saying, you know, I don't, and it was always with this question of like, why is it that this, this particular animal has gone, you know, has become crooked? Because all the other 50 that we know, which live in this area or whatever, you know, all the other ones that we've encountered are not like that. Um, and what happened then was exactly as I said, there were particular characteristics that they would talk about with them, uh, with these particular crooked cats. So something that was used very often to describe them was the fact that they're very cunning, that they're very devious, that they are, you know, it's hard to know exactly what they're thinking because they're able to outsmart humans that, um, and this this idea of the cunningness of them um, was something that was again and again sort of repeated to me. Um, you know, there was just, also there was this idea of, you know, something that would often come up would be like sort of huge speculations on uh, their past lives on, you know, what is it that's made them like that? What trauma have they suffered? What harm has been visited upon them? What is it that they're not able to, you know, what is it that's making them clear? What's making them go off this, the path that they were actually born to? follow in that sense. Um, So I think the question of language is really important and this nuances of translating from you know from the local dialect in Hindi to English is also very important Um, but you're absolutely right that the way one of the ways like in one of the chapters the first chapter which is called Crooked Becomings where I really explore this question of what makes a a particular big cat a crooked cat um, something that was really talked about was personality was you know like this one is wily it's sly it does things it's cheeky it's impertinent it's cunning it's clever so they had and that was how you could start to sort of make out if a particular big cat could be crooked because you know you don't always know so there could be a crooked cat who's around but you don't quite know it till they actually start attacking humans but because we live in such close proximity to them up in the mountains um you know and this is a heavily sort of this is in the middle of two biodiversity zones and a big national park, et cetera, um, very scarcely, uh, sparsely human population uh, populated, but like actually a lot of sort of, well, there used to be mobile life earlier, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, and they, they said that, you know, you have to develop these sensory perceptions and how, how do you identify it? And the way you identify a potential crooked cat or crooked cat is through uh, a particular, ca- particular character that they assume which is always sort of negative. Though they often, you know, there's also the sort of weird thing about how this one is so sassy and it has cheek and impertinence. It's very um, in the way in which, you know, it sort of occupies space and walks around and reveals itself. Um, so another characteristic, just on this question of, you know, what was the characteristic that could make them crooked? That really was an indication that this is a crooked cat is that they're unafraid of humans, that they, too, that they have no fear of humans, that they, display themselves publicly in broad daylight in public spaces, that they interact with humans in a way that, um, you know, you wouldn't expect from a seedhava, from a straightforward big cat, because normally they won't avoid you. They will hide. They see you, they'll like jump on the bush and, you know, camouflage themselves so that they have no encounter with you. But then what are these animals that don't do it? So yeah. Um, There are lots and lots of stories around precisely uh, what you picked out. But I think, thank you for picking up the question of language, because I think for me, that is really central to this is actually being able to sensitively translate across these domains where people talk about them in particular narrative forms. You know, you're sitting around a fire talking and then there'll be these long stories about, you know, there was that bug which did this and there was this one there. And this one carried off my niece when she was four, but she fought with him and then she escaped, you know, all these like stories, which it's it's like, it's, over, it's brimming over with stories about them. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's a challenge for an anthropologist to try to capture them and then describe them in a sensitive manner without, I don't know, without exoticizing them, without playing them up, but also being sensitive to the kind of harm and pain and that this causes.
0: So, did they use do they use the same kind of terminology or the same kind of um, characteristics then? applied to people as well? Do people yeah. in these stories become crooked that, that, that they're doing yeah. the wrong thing too?
2: Yeah, great question, Dolly. So, you know, one of the ways, like, as I said, my earlier work was on bureaucrats and bureaucracy and, you know, paperwork, etc. And one of the ways in which uh, these people will talk about corruption or somebody who's corrupt is that they'll say he's a buka bug, which means a hungry big cat. Um, and it's literally, and it basically shows this appetite for eating and for consumption and for predation through this. So you're absolutely right that there are similar um, metaphors, the similar phrases, but there are also similar characterizations to talk about certain evil people, right. And again, like, um, in the mountains in, in Uttarakhand, there's a huge uh, and a historical animosity between the people who live in these in the Himalaya, the mountain people and the plains people. And there was a way in which you would, um, you know, I would see often that um, certain, so I mean, just a, again, just as a, as a ethnographic example, maybe to explicate exactly what he just said. Um, one of the other theories about crooked cats is that these are actually big cats that were in zoos or in rehabilitation centers that were kept in the plains of India, but the plains people of India and the Indian state is so either it's so negligent of the mountain people, or it actively wants to kill them. It wants to kill them through these, you know, weapons that are these crooked cats, that they send these big cats up to the mountains, uh, to consume these humans in the mountains. And um, the way they would talk about these, um, these big cats, they'd say that, you know, this is not a, um, it's not a Pahari, because it's not a mountain cat, it's a plains cat. And like the plains people, it is misbehaved it is you know it's coming here to destroy us it thinks that we are we our value our lives have no value it thinks that you know it we're just nothing but like food for them it thinks that it can take away our babies it thinks it can you know walk in and run away with our, our livestock etc so there was this whole like um um projection of that plains people identity onto these particular cats um as, as, as similar as similar kinds of peace um, but also the metaphors, like I said, the idea of corruption being a hungry big cat, you know. Um, and then even the phrase man like, you know, Adam core, like it would also be used for really violent, horrible people. Um, it's it, I know in the English language, it's used in a sexualized form, right? Like the, mad, the man-eater, the the, ho- the siren, the woman who's a siren who eats men and the man-eater, but it was never used like that um, in this context. It was used in a very, very different manner, very much to talk about power and politics and corruption um, and inequality.
1: So another phenomenon I think is quite common then with big predators in general mm-hmm. is that different groups of people tend to see them in very different ways i mean they're thinking about uh like the wolf in the nordic countries that i mean is intensely hated by particular groups so farmers uh hunters i mean at least the people who don't hunt wolves uh but they the wolves will go after the the hunting dogs so i i've seen that a lot in my research um, but then they also become kind of symbol animals, you know, the the flagship animals for animal protection. You know, they they represent wilderness, you know, they represent nature. You know, all the things that people like about nature, this this wild, untamed mm. character. So do you see the same thing there again? Who are the different people who think about the the tigers?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, great question. I mean, because in India, like what you really see is, um, especially when it comes to um, to crooked ones, uh, you know, um, to those that can harm humans or actively harm them, um, is that you see that there's a middle-class, upper-class, urban, elite, uh, conservationist lobby Um, That is really all about seeing the beauty, about seeing, about protecting them, about taking care of them, about, you know, sort of um, blaming, you know, humans for what uh, humans do, et cetera, uh, for blaming the people who live near them for not actually, um, you know, paying enough attention, et cetera. Uh, And these are very, very different from the ways in which uh, some of the mountain people, for instance, who I worked with, or other people who live in close proximity to them think of them. So this is not to say that they, these people, don't see beauty or they don't respect big cats or they don't want them to live and thrive. On the contrary, of course they do, but they just don't talk about them in the same way, right? Because there is there's a totally different relationship here, um, and you know it, it's it's a very I mean again I write about this and I've written about this even previously that the way in which conservationism, big cat conservationism in particular, with these so-called tiger lovers who are all over the place. Has taken off is really exclusivist, it's really elite, it really is anti-humanistic in its in its position in a way, actually. Um there is some really good literature coming out of South Asia on this, on on you know the elitism and the exclusivist nature, exclusionary nature of conservationism in India. And I mean they've done a much better job of writing about it, say than I than I do. But there is a marked difference in the way in which people talk. Uh, and I think the point I would underline here is really that. It's not as if people in the mountains or elsewhere don't, you know, also appreciate them or love them or like them. It's it's just that they have a different way of talking about them, which doesn't just focus purely on the beauty. It is more, you know, interested in interspecies entanglement and you know what's happening to them and the ways in which they affect your lives. Uh, so much more complicated and complex narratives than sort of the simplest, simpler ones of beauty of big cats that you might get from urban and elite uh, spaces.
1: So we have some questions in the chat. And so Monica's, uh actually aligns quite nicely with what you, you just talked about then, because she wants to know about differences and similarities between scientific and popular explanations about crooked cats. So in a way, scientific theories versus folk theories or local folk uh, theories. So can you say something about
2: that. Thank you, Monica, for that question. And um, I hope it wasn't too painful at the dentist. Um, But thank you for that question. And thank you for turning up um, for this, despite that visit to the dentist. Um, Yes, so there are, you know, I think one of the things which I'm sort of finding fascinating, um, and I, I need to sort of that is something I want to think about even further as I do research in non human animals, is really this uh, question of the differences and similarities between popular explanations about crooked cats and the seemingly scientific ones. Um, and what I've been sort of struck by is how actually, it, there is a way in which again, to go back to the, the conservationist uh, discussion that we were just having. There's a way in which some, of, not all, but some of these NGOs, especially the international NGOs, or some of the more sort of elite celebrity conservationists make a sharp distinction um, between the, it's like, for them, it's a dichotomy. There's a difference between the science around cats and what people say, you know, what are the popular explanations about them. So like, as you said, local folk theories around them, oral histories, memories, myths, you know, just beastly tales, basically, as I, I say. And actually what I have been trying to do, and, you know, again, I do talk about this in a couple of chapters here, is that if you sort of, if you take these beastly details seriously, if you take them on, if you give them perhaps the time and the respect that they need, if you're not, if you're willing to take these forms of knowledges as actually as knowledge, not just you know ignorant people who don't know what they're talking about, or I don't know, if if you if you pay them the respect I think that they need, and you're willing to, uh, you know, to collect them and work through them, there are many many uh, overlaps between the science and uh, local folk theories as you put it um, let me just give you one example to explain this um so something that you know of course what we're seeing now more and more in um in animal studies is like is how animals are have cognitive capacities how animals have emotion how they actually sentient souls how you know they're able capable of love they're capable of grief they're capable of you know feeling pain um, it, they have ideas of kinship, et cetera. This is all sort of stuff that's coming out from for different animals, right? So if you think of, say, just for instance, the octopus, um, there are lots of works, including those of popular science, that show that the octopus is actually an extremely intelligent animal, right? And that actually they, they have very high um emotive intelligence, basically. Um and that is, you know, for for these in these theories, there is a lot of I mean, they all assume that they begin with this question of animal agency, that these are agentive, they're intelligent, uh, they are capable of emotion, they're capable of respect, they're capable of love, they're capable of, you know, the capable of uh, understanding you. So, you know, I think something that I find really interesting is how a lot of people talk about, say, the the local tiger, for instance, and the way in which that tiger who they know and they've come to be able to identify because of, you know, distinctive traits or particular whatever strike marks or you know they just see them all the time they're able to talk about how this tiger knows them the tiger understands them the tiger recognizes them the tiger is doing what the tiger is doing because of you know past history or because of what happened to you know a relationship etc i mean there are ways in which they talk about them which again overlaps with a lot of the other work that we're sort of finding in um in in the scientific sort of so-called scientific um stories on it so I mean so one of in fact one of my sort of ambitions in this is also to try to say, you know, well, that which we consider science and that that we which we consider um you know I don't know just normal knowledge or whatever, native knowledge, et cetera, there are ways in which they intersect um, and they sort of complement each other or they exceed each other, or they go in different directions. And part of it is to actually think about how that happens here. Um, but something I would say, and I think that, you know, when it comes to the climate crisis, like that's the big question of this book, right? Like, how does this help us understand something as big as climate change? I think that if we pay enough attention to, um, to these beastly tales, we get a really good in, into understanding something as big and global at, at scale like the climate crisis, in a way that, to me, uh, well, I, I am an anthropologist, and you know, so maybe it's different, but to me, is more um, accessible and more convincing than you know some sort of dry article in Nature magazine or something like that. So, so thank you, Monica, for that really great question.
1: So part of the, your response made me wonder about one thing then do people have them particular strategies for cultivating i would say friendly or non non-crooked relationships with individual tigers since they, you say they recognize them
2: yes exactly um exactly um they do uh so they have you know so like in maharashtra for instance there is a goddess called bagova which is basically um it's it's basically a tiger that you know who is actually a goddess who they actually worship etc but um so there are ways in which you know in some contexts there are sacred and the, the sort of you know kept at particular um they kept it particular spaces and worshiped etc but even in terms of you know entailing a non like finding strategies to live with them so that they don't become crooked. They do some very basic things like, you know, putting their pet dogs away from them, cleaning up garbage because they get attracted to, 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 you know, to waste. If they see a big cat, you know, they will just sort of slowly tread away instead of antagonizing them. One of the things which I think is the most powerful ways in which humans, like the, the people I work with in the Himalaya have actually are able to identify what the problem is and how to keep crooked cats at bay is that most of them not all of them but most of them are very very opposed to killing them and opposed to hunting them in particular uh because they say that you know the the moment you start killing these big cats uh they actually come back not not the same ones but you know they're whatever kin or you know they have very strong uh, notions of retribution and justice and reincarnation etc this is a dominantly Hindu uh, space, um, they talk about how this will actually exacerbate climate, uh, not climate change, sorry, this will exacerbate human animal conflict of that really brutal form. And for me, I think, you know, and there are all these studies which are showing in other parts of the world that uh, whether it is with cougars in the US or with other, you know, predators in other parts of the world that actually, if you hunting actually leads to an increase in conflict like that isn't the end of it. And that for me is something that I find again, to go back to Monica's previous question, that is something I find really fascinating that they were like, the more you hunt them, the more violence you sort of inflict upon them as a species, the more they're able to, you know, the more it's going to lead to conflict. So you have to find more pacifist ways of living with them.
1: Do you think then in extension of that, that, you know, the ability to, well, live with them, to deal with them is a skill that is developed that particular people have but Mm -hmm. with you know changing environmental conditions the tigers moving into new habitats it encounters people who do not have those skills and if that kind of 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 conflict increases then you will have more violent cases because it's in contact with more and more people who don't know how to deal with them
0: and then that, that kind of leads to the question do people then in telling these stories um, you know, locally in their communities or to their families? Are they teaching moments? Mm-hmm. Um, do they do they actively pass down information about how to deal with um, these local big cats? Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, I mean, just to take them together. So, you know, the first um, point of, you know, l- adapting and learning to live and figuring out ways to cohabit. Uh, absolutely, there are, there's a lot of ways in which people do that and to sort of just explicate that and to show how how much of a difference human relations, human action makes, um, I have this one chapter in the book which is basically a comparison between three cities in India. So this is Dehradun, the city in Uttarakhand, Shimla, which is a city in Himachal Pradesh, and the, the you know, the metropolis of uh, Mumbai. Uh, and all three of the cities have, in particular pockets, they have a human leopard. All, these are leopards that we're talking about. They have problems, quote unquote, of leopards walking in and attacking humans or being in human dominated areas. All three of them are big cities, especially Mumbai, as you can imagine. Um, uh, but what I found really interesting between the three cities is that um, in dehradun which is, you know, um, which is part of this region, which has a long history of hunting, it has very charismatic hunters, it has a very sort of the the, the forest service and the the bureaucracy that looks after them is very quote-unquote colonial in in its cultural practices, it believes in hunting and killing in a way that you don't necessarily see in other parts of India. Um, The response of the people is immediately just kill it, like they literally see a leopard walking on the street and they are like kill it immediately, which I find really fascinating because as soon as you go to, Shim- to Shimla, which is actually not even that far away from Dehradun in terms of physical distance, um, you know, I would meet people who'd be like, yeah, oh yeah, you know, when I go to work every morning, I see that leopard and walks past and I say namaste to it and it goes its way, I go my way, simple. You know, nothing has happened. I mean, they, there is no, like seeing a leopard in that space is just like, yeah, it's like, you know, us seeing a, a cat in, in England, you know, on the road, like literally, like a small cat, not a big cat. So, you know, um. So it's basically, it's like, it's, it's fascinating. Then you go to Mumbai, and Mumbai is really particularly telling in relation to your question, Finn, because they had this period where there was a very high level of conflict. Like I, I hate that word, and I don't really use it, but there was a very high level of um, violence, I guess, between the two, where a lot of lepers were killing people in this particular area. And then you see that there were these community-led organizations, which worked with the government, with the forest department, and a couple of very good, rooted wildlife biologists and conservationist agencies. Um, And they came together and did the sort of community outreach in that area. And they changed some of the policies, such as that of relocating or rehabilitating problem leopards. Hunting is very, very hard in this area anyway. They, you know, they did all sorts of stuff, which um, I I, I can't, I won't necessarily go into detail here. But the point is that it immediately lowered conflict. Like conflict just went down. Those incidences completely plummeted. So you see that, you know, for me, Mumbai is a fascinating example of this, that changes in human behavior and a sensitization to these, to these you know, very charismatic non-human neighbors of ours uh, makes profound changes in the space, right? And I mean, it really, it, it keeps getting me back to that conundrum, which initially I found perplexing that when I would ask humans about big cats, they would not talk about the big cat, they would talk about humans they would talk about human action. They would talk about politics and economics and capital and the state and colonialism and you know this big business and that rich industrialist and that evil corrupt politician. I mean, and I'm like, but I want to talk about the cat and they're like, but you can't understand the cat outside these human made systems, you know, and politics um, which to me is, you know, again, very telling. Um, but the point, Do- Dolly, that you were making absolutely like, you know, there is a lot of like, as you're saying, teachable moments, there's a lot of like, you know, See, and especially so with me as an outsider, and as an anthropologist who then you was interested in this, they'd be like, "Well, Neneka, you know, if you, you know, what you must do if there is a leopard in your area, you must do ABCD." Neneka, you know, they have, you know, they have a memory. They carry. They know what happened in the past life. They know what you know. Who has hurt their children, or who's hurt you know their grandparents? And you have to treat them with respect. I mean, the ways in which the, you're told to to cohabit, you're taught, you're told how to live with them respectfully uh, in a way that's equitable to both humans and non-humans. And and these narratives and the nuances of them are completely lost, frankly, in some of the big conservationist NGOs or the state decrees and the guidelines that they have, which make no space for these forms of knowledges, which make no space for these affective relations between uh, big cats and humans.
1: So you mentioned that you can't really understand these cats without Mm -hmm. understanding humans but I think that makes uh, Sagnik's question in the chat really fascinating because Mm -hmm. uh, there you had a question of what relations do these crooked cats have with other non-human entities, I guess in a way, are these crooked cats only crooked to humans, Uh, Mm -hmm. what do they mean to to other uh, species?
2: Yeah, great question. Sacknick. So, you know, I think one of the, the two animals that I particularly know that uh, these crooked cats have uh, very like interesting relations with. The first is with dogs. Um, and these can be stray dogs on the road, or it can be pet dogs. Uh, and, you know, like pepper, for instance. So they, they do have, you know, very intense relations with dogs. So they often prey on dogs. Um, but there's also a way in which uh, when a pack of dogs gets together, it's like, you know, the dog wolf thing to go back to the thing that you're talking about. When a pack of dogs gets together, you have a particularly like strong dog or a particularly, I don't know, <laughs> particularly macho dog. I don't know what kind of dog it is. Um, they, they they do get scared of them and run away from them as well. So they, they, there is a very, very interesting relationship here. Um, what I found really interesting in my fieldwork is the way in which People protect even the stray dogs. So, like for instance, when this leopard came to Kupeshwar in the beginning, all the street dogs who were were pulled into our rooms at night. So we would literally divide them up and say, we can't let that doggy like sleep on the road because the leopard is around and might eat him up, which I found really interesting. I can't, I because they never otherwise talked about having these leopards in uh, these big cats, um, sorry, these dogs in the homes and protecting them in the homes. Um but the other interesting thing, which I found, uh, which I find interesting in terms of, you know, just thinking of the overarching thing of crooked cats and crookedness, is the way in which when humans get to know that their beloved pet dog has been um, has been killed by a leopard or a tiger it just changes the whole scenario so dramatically, right? And uh, that's something, again, that I study a bit in concert with the fact that you now have all these CCTV cameras in these urban areas like Shimla, Adair Adun, Bombay. You have um, you know, surveillance cameras, you have WhatsApp, you have like smartphones. So there are ways in which we're seeing big cats in a very different way from the way we used to see them even five, 10 years back. Um, and there is a way in which the moment you start seeing you know, you see. So again, just a anecdote to explain this a bit more um, is that you know when and um, one of the interviews I did was with this retired judge, this elderly man who retired in this uh, in Shimla, and he had um, his beloved pet dog, whom he had had for like fifteen years or something, was actually picked up by a leopard and killed and eaten by this leopard, and he saw the whole thing on his surveillance camera. So I went to interview, and he wanted not just this leopard killed, he wanted every leopard in this area killed. Of course, because the forest, they didn't allow it, and they didn't actually do anything like that. They put up a little cage outside his house just to pacify him, but the cage never trapped the leopard, and, you know, it was all whatever. But when I went to interview him, he kept showing me the the video on Loop in which you can see this leopard picking up his pet dog. And, you know, he started crying while he was showing it to me, and I just remember, like, it was just a very... I mean, it was just extremely painful at so many levels, right? For him, for us to witness this um, and for him, the way he just could not, he obsessively would see that. Um, and so one of the things I want to sort of think about in, in this work is that, you know, what about these kind of emotions, right? What about that tear that rolls down his cheek and the kind of things that the actions that it leads to um, and how do we sort of, how do we write that into this larger story is something I'm interested in doing. The other animal that they have sort of, you know, a lot of, uh, well, other animals that I I have personally seen that they have a lot of sort of interaction with um, and which are interesting is really with goats um, and um, other smaller livestock, uh, including calves uh, in the Himalaya, because people keep them, uh, you know, for the livelihood, basically. And they have these little homesteads that they work on, et cetera. And that is also something that really changes relations. Between, um, between humans and big cats, if a goat is picked up or a calf is, a calf is killed, et cetera. Uh, but again, so I, I, I do uh, have a bit on leopard dog relations, but somehow the human always comes in and this might be my own anthropocentrism. It might be the fact that I'm seeing everything through human lenses, uh, but yeah. But yeah, thank you for that because that's a really important point in terms of how they interact with other non-human entities. Uh, well beyond just humans.
1: You mentioned then the, um, the CCTV surveillance cameras and, and I guess you have like this whole range of new technologies that's been deployed in recent decades, at least as ways of, of sensing and monitoring animals. Yeah. Um, I know I, I don't know do you do uh, do you do tracking of these leopards, uh, mm-hmm. like with with collars, like to do yeah. with wolves here. Yeah. How has that how has this influenced and the, the, the human cat relations?
2: Yeah. So uh, thanks. I actually have a chapter called Entrapment, which is precisely on this. It's called Entrapment New Ways of Seeing Big Cats, uh, where I actually look at CCTV um, and I look at camera trapping, because camera trapping is relatively new in India. And of course, so are surveillance cameras. Uh, these are all sort of relatively new technologies. Um, what is also relatively new is the fact that these leopards in particular, but also tigers, are now entering urban areas with an increasing frequency of a form that they didn't earlier. So like, there are two the city that I know very well, and I've been working for in, for a while. I mean, everyone you talk to is like, you know, we never used to see so many leopards walking around on the main road or, you know, killing people. Like, we knew they were there, they'd be hiding in the jungle. Uh, and I'm like, but how do you know this? And they were like, well, one way we know it is because our surveillance camera is showing it. The other way they know it is through camera trapping. Um, and so one of the things that I, I think is very interesting is that you know one of the big debates we're having around human animal relations and you know, animals more generally uh, is what do we do with legal regimes around that, right? So if you think about that famous uh, monkey selfie case where Naruto took a selfie selfie you know um and then there was that big WWF and you know I mean there was this whole legal complication about does he have personhood did he actually take the selfie um there are these big questions of law that are coming out on you know what is the legal um you know legal status of non-humans whether it's a river or whether it's a non-human animal like big cats etc and these big questions in law seem to be divorced from smaller things like smaller things like what is that emotion you feel when you open your camera trap and you see that that tiger actually um, sleeps in your on top of your car in your driveway? Which, by the way, we it does like there is that's actually a case I'm talking about. Or you know when you go for your walk every day, there's a leopard that's following you and has been following you for the last five years every day, but has never you've never seen them. So what and you know what that emotion in that moment? What does that then do? To your, you know, to to the way in which you as a human then respond and react to these animals, and then what are the consequences of this on bigger things like uh, legal, ethical regimes towards the non-human, etc. Um, and so that's one way in which you know. And the thing is, again, if you look at the conservationist literature, it's all about the benefits of what's called digital conservation. It's all about you know this is great, this is non-intrusive. Like for instance, camera trapping, not uh, collaring, but camera trapping is a non-intrusive technology and through that we're getting to know so much about big cats that we didn't actually know previously Um, and you know actually in a way what I'm arguing against that I'm arguing against the belief that these technologies uh, produce a particular result that is straightforwardly scientific rational and technical in terms of producing knowledge of a form Uh, I'm actually arguing and saying that what's happening with these technologies is that they have very unintended and unanticipated results and effects including that of that visceral response of that emotion that they lead to whether it's a gasp of shock or amazement or it's it's a you know it's a scream of terror and we have to find a way to um, include these emotions these human emotions into thoughts about technology uh, i haven't really worked on collar uh, collaring of leopards that much but i have worked um on camera trapping a lot i i, did, I tried camera trapping myself uh with student volunteers in one part of india
0: that's so interesting because i mean part of it is we have these technologies now and so they're there so it it can be if you will that the tiger was always sleeping on your car it's been sleeping on your car since there were cars but you didn't know it was sleeping on your car and then once you know it somehow that changes your whole entire attitude towards it um and and so that's really interesting to think about that emotional play Yep.
1: yep I just wanted to get in like one last question here about, I guess, a fairly big topic, because you, I mean, you frame this as also a way of talking about the Anthropocene. Um, So what I'm wondering there is like, across the planet, I mean, we're all living through the Anthropocene, we're living with the consequences of these particular forms of, you know, geological, environmental, social change, Uh, but the the awareness of it in a way the i guess the way we talk about it and think about it <clears throat> in specific terms is it varies a lot depending on where you are so so i'm wondering how much i guess explicit reflection on environmental change do you see them i mean again in relations to this mm-hmm. encounters and relationships with the crooked cats do mm-hmm. they talk about this in particular like this is a consequence of some kind of change i mean they may not or probably don't use the term anthropocene it's too technical yeah. but
2: yeah exactly they don't use the term anthropocene but they talk all the time about change and they talk especially again in the himalaya the change they talk about is actually they talk about death they talk about ending they talk about things finishing they talk about i mean they're really dark um they're very cataclysmic it's very much like you know something that. I mean, they've been talking about for a long time. Again, to go back to 2006, when I started my work, they'd be like, well, you know, everything here is ending. This is, you know, it's it, things are dying. And animal, and, you know, and when you talk to them about death, of course, talk about things like riverbeds drying up, glaciers vanishing. I mean, again, very, very evident um, where you can see it. You know, more and more, a cri- like, massive disasters happening. Um, so just earlier the year in Chamoli District, this is the place I worked in, there was a massive, uh, gl- like, a glacial breach, which led to flooding and dams bursting, etc. So there is, these are very, very cataclysmic things that they talk about and they've been talking about for a while, but they talk about it, you know, really, I mean, when I sort of, again, to go back to maybe Monica's first question, right, and to the point you're making, they don't use the word Anthropocene, they don't put it in the same narrative as Paul Crutzen has put it, you know, but what they're basically talking about is you know, large scale change, that's very evident. And one of the ways in which it's evident is in the very, very strange behavior of these crooked cats. It is in um, these massive disasters that happen all the time. It's in the glacier that they can't see anymore. It's in the river that's dried up. It's in the forest that's dying. It's in the mustier that, you know, there was a must sanctuary right next to this place I worked in. There's not a single mustier left there. Um, you know, so it's it's in extinction and endangerment and all of these things They don't use those terms, but they absolutely talk about them. And in fact, you know, for me, that is one of the, you know, I mean, I'm wondering, like, what what do I bring at all to the study? And I think the only thing that I, one can is really try to center these voices, center these narratives and center these stories and say that, you know, what happens when we listen to them? What happens when you pay careful attention to them? Can something like Anthropocene, which has all these like, you know, very technical debates in uh, in the natural sciences, but also in the humanities and social sciences, they have particular kinds of, you know, theoretical conceptual debates, which are going on about it. Um, what happens when we center these stories in it, right? Are we then able to think of the Anthropocene in a different way? Are we able to believe that people are talking about that which we call the Anthropocene, that which we call the climate crisis, but they're talking about it through these very rooted stories which are coming out of the Himalaya. And that's, that's an ambition of the work.
0: Thank you so much. Nayanika Mather, who's um, shared with us about Crooked Cats, beastly encounters in the Anthropocene with University of Chicago Press in 2021. Um, It was absolutely fantastic to hear about this work that looks at uh, those cat-human relations and how um, crooked cats are reacted to and thought about, and all of the structures and knowledges that go uh, around them, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so
2: much for having me, and thank you uh, both, Finn and Dolly, for you know for hosting this and for rescheduling. And thank you, everyone who was here. Thank you for your comments and your questions and your very, 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 very supportive comments in the chat box. I really appreciate this. Um, thanks a lot.